if I want to participate and really drive this in, in the best way I know how, I, I need to create a pull in that market and really find the innovation in a seaweed product that is so prolific. You know, I don't think there's anything um, worthwhile in creating an innovation if, if there's not going to be a market for it. Otherwise, it's just it's going to die in a lab. You know, it's all nice to want to try and save the planet, but you have to have money in the bank to do that. Whatever your fantastic idea is, it has to be commercial at scale. We want global uptake of this. I want global impact. And that's for the outcomes that I'm looking for. You know, I want to see communities uplifted. I want to see less plastic in the ocean. And I want to see less carbon being emitted from, you know, replacing a lot of these high carbon products. Do you reckon seaweed entrepreneurs experience the paradox of choice when starting a new venture and deciding which product or service to work on? I would have to say... Welcome to Inside Seaweed, the podcast looking deep into the seaweed industry through the stories of pioneers, entrepreneurs and innovators shaping up its future. My guest today is Finula Quinn, founder and CEO of Kelpie, a company that aims to replace plastic with a regenerative and circular biomaterial that could use soil as a carbon sink. Before we dive into this uh, conversation, I wanted to let you know about the new Inside Seaweed newsletter. Would you like to get a super short email from me every month with three actionable insights for your seaweed business? I will search the seaweed industry for the most important lessons, the most useful conclusions and relevant actions condensed into a half page that I will share with you each month. It's easy to sign up and just as easy to cancel. If you'd like to give it a try, head over to InsideSeaweed.com. Finula, thank you so much for making the time. I know you're traveling, so it's, it's great to have you here. No, thank you, Fed. It's wonderful to be on your podcast. Looking forward to chatting. I understand that you will be moderating the very first Seagriculture Conference Asia Pacific on February the 8th. Of course, by the time this episode goes live, the conference will already have happened. But um, from where we stand, what do you expect from it? Yeah, I think it's it's really exciting to be, and it's the right time for us to be coming together and, and getting that overview of the region. There's been a lot of activity and there's really some rapid movement in terms of technologies all across the board. So I think it'll be a really exciting time and there's a lot more investment and sort of market pool in the region. We're obviously really well placed in Australia as an island nation to jump into the future of seaweed and, and take advantage of um, where the industry's going. So I'm really looking forward to seeing where where uh, the different players are, are activating, but also how we can come together and collaborate as a region um, more holistically. Have you been to similar events in the past? Uh, no, this is actually my first. Um, I'm quite a newbie to the seaweed space, not the aquaculture space, but this is the first seaweed event that I'll be um, participating in, so that's very exciting. From previous events in different industries, what do you normally get out of it when you attend? I'm just thinking for people that are potentially getting started in the seaweed industry now, uh, what reasons they might have to, to uh, sort of attend these sort of events? Oh, uh, I think 
Look, when I, when I look at it, I actually attend a lot of climate tech events and um, the last couple of years I've obviously been quite Zoom, you know, virtual attendance. Yeah. But even still, I think you get get out what you put in, like with a lot of things. Mm. For me, I like to go in and really look at different players. If someone is uh, is looking like of something of interest that I really want to explore more, uh, I think don't be shy and just make as many connections as you can. Ask as many questions and engage as much as you can because it's incredible what you find out and people are always willing to share. So, yeah, it's always a fascinating space and collaboration is key. It sounds like a bit of a mix between learning and building a bit of a network. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just follow uh, – the biggest learning for me in the past has been following through on those connections and, yeah, creating deeper connections and just really that's what's going to build this industry. Uh, the more we learn from each other and share and engage, the faster we'll, we'll get to these solutions that we're all looking for. Absolutely. Okay, thanks for that. There is a book from a psychologist, Barry Schwartz, titled The Paradox of Choice. I wouldn't expect you to know anything about it, though if you have read it, that would be, be interesting. <laughs> uh, so please feel free to say. <laughs> But um, in the book, he essentially argues that the more options we have, the harder it becomes to make a, a good decision. Do you reckon seaweed entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs in general experience at times the paradox of choice when starting a new venture and deciding which product or service to work on? I would have to say a million percent yes. <laughs> um, it's something that I've, okay. I've become very, very aware of and very, um, I guess, diligent in, in keeping my focus. So I think because it's an emerging and disruptive space, it's tempting to try and delve into the value chain and try and solve all of those solutions and look at all of the mm. opportunity. But you can look at everything and try everything, but you may achieve nothing. So what I've learned is really to drill down on your solution and you absolutely have to integrate mm. that with everyone else. But there's been an interesting time where we're all connecting. It's fantastic space in seaweed. Everyone is so open and there's a lot of I can't even count how many hundreds of Zooms and, and phone calls I've had with, with other seaweed founders and experts. But finding your place in that value chain and really having laser focus on what you want to achieve in your specific founder journey is, is absolutely key. And it's where we've landed with Kelpie, just to focus purely on compostable seaweed for the cosmetics consumer segment, so packaging that is so tailored to these use cases to enter that market and make sure we actually commercialize and and not worry about the million other uses that we can consider along the way right now because it's just important yeah. to get those one or two things into market and then you know you can you can optimize and you can you can keep validating new uses as you go but um, yeah just to keep that focus absolutely really key <laughs> definitely just to dive a bit a bit deeper on that Uh, I understand that when you got started in the in the path that took you to founding your company, Kelpie, you were trying to commercialize a climate solution. I'm curious to learn which other options have you considered or even tested maybe? Yeah, um, no, that's a really good question. I've definitely been infatuated with seaweed for a few years and 
There's quite a well-known film that came out in Australia called the 2040 film, and it looks at all of the innovations we can use today, so what is already known, and the impact we can have on um, combating climate change by 2040 if we implement them right now. There was a very big kind of segment dedicated to seaweed in the film, and there was a lot around carbon sequestration and then all kinds of byproducts, you know, from textiles to packaging, food, biomedical. All of it was so fascinating to me. But I think, yeah, sorry, I forgot your question. I just went back to what my why and how I got inspired. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. No, that's, that's interesting. I was, I was taking notes because uh, I haven't seen 2014. Oh, they've they've released a condensed um, twenty thirty version because they they've understand that there's twenty thirty regenerating Australia is the latest sixteen minute film they released just um, last year. So huh. again, it's about trying to um, speed up these solutions and empower individuals to know that they can actually start today. And so it's interesting that I watched that film in twenty nineteen with my children, and and here I am. I thought. I'm going to do that, and here I am, you know, yeah. two or three years later, and uh, and I'm doing it. So it's 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 possible. Just to stay a little bit on that point, like I said, I haven't seen the the, the film, but um, from what I hear, it's it's got a, quite a positive view of the future. And I was going to ask you how important do you think that is in terms of inspiring vision of something that will that will work, that will be cool, and that will be better. Yeah, I, for me, uh, I'm an internal optimist, and which can be very difficult if you're also in the climate tech space. <laughs> We're all very aware of <laughs> the declining environment, but I think it's it's important to take stock of the wins and look around you and be inspired by everyone else in this space that is really putting up a fight. Yeah. And for me, I've just got it. You know, in my mind, I I will die trying to to do this to make this a reality. If yeah. yeah, you can't really look at the next generation and not say I'm I'm not going to do everything I can to hand over a better planet and retain what we can of of nature as fast as possible. So there really is no giving up. I think it's just a, a no quit. You know, there's no quitting. <laughs> Basically, mm. yeah. But no, thanks for that. It's yeah. a really interesting point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got four daughters, so I think to your point about did I start in other places? I absolutely did. When I looked in Australia, I thought. Yeah, I want to make, you know, seaweed, compostable packaging, really tackle this plastic pollution problem in the ocean. I'm an absolute ocean advocate and lover. But then realized that we had this huge gap in knowledge of commercial farming in Australia and even the regulation was was really against us in Australia to actually get that to take off to try and start regenerating and start farming. So I got really distracted with best practice farming and lobbying government, made a lot of fantastic partners in Europe at that time in the hardware software space, in farming expertise, uh, hatchery experts, which is all coming to fruition now that we're finally getting some traction with some seaweed farmers in Australia about to finally put some lines in the water. So I don't regret that time Mm -hmm. and, and that knowledge, but I quickly realized if I want to participate and really drive this in in the best way I know how. I, I need to create a pull in that market and really find the innovation in a seaweed product that is so prolific, being FMCG packaging, that will have a global impact if we can actually enter that disruptive product into the market. And and that led me to connect with you know ethical suppliers, 
globally who uh-huh. already have abundant species, regenerative ocean farmers, or invasive species that we're seeing in places like the Caribbean, Fiji, Pacific Islands, Seychelles, where we've got an abundance of species like sargassum and to valorize that is tackling two problems at once as well. So while I wait for Australia to come online and really participate in, in seaweed farming at scale, we've got all these fantastic neighbours that are already growing seaweed and already have an abundance of supply. That led me to just focus on the, on the product, I suppose, and, and get my laser focus on this one solution. Fantastic. We'll come back to the um, supply chain because it's something that I think uh, a lot of the listeners will find very interesting. But um, just for a second, let's dive a bit deeper on your, how you, you got to that choice. And um, what I was going to ask you is when you decided, okay, this is what I'm, I'm going to do. Did you know anything at that point about making bioplastic with seaweed? <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely don't have material science background or or anything like that. I knew it was possible, I, you know, because we've a lot of people yeah. were exploring it at that time when I made the choice to go, okay, it's possible. No one's cracked it, but, you know, if you're just completely tenacious about it and, and one-eyed, you, you're going to yeah. get there. So I think, yeah, that dedication to that one one outcome is really key. But for me, it was a really easy one. So I actually grew up in a, a fishing village. It was a crayfishing village in Western Australia, so very small town. My father actually pioneered the first commercial ocean farm, so fish farms in, in Western Australia, and he went on quite a big journey. Back when I was a teenager, he, he travelled to Norway, he travelled to Japan, all over the world to try and look at best practice. He lobbied the government quite hard at that time. He was very concerned with the decline in fish stocks, he was out there every day and he was watching the native, like endemic fish species going down and down and down every year. The crayfish were diminishing every year. But he they, he didn't get anywhere with government at that time. They, they said, basically, there's plenty of fish in the sea. We don't know what you're worried about. So that was disappointing, but there was a lot of learnings there. He built a, a big, successful hatchery. He had the right mentality in terms of getting broodstock from your native bioregion and getting the best quality sort of fish that are already accustomed to that environment and will thrive in that environment and then giving them a really natural space. But also just restocking the ocean is one of his key goals, basically replenishing for the sake of putting back what you're taking out. So when it came to seaweed, um, I moved to the town where I am now on the other coast of Australia and there's a lot of uh, really incredible seaweed scientists on that coast that are hugely inspiring, particularly females. So that was inspiring in itself, landing there, and then just looking around and seeing the, I think we had three 100-year storms in, in one year last year. So we had incredible influx of plastics on our beaches, and I also have four daughters. So I have a bathroom that has shampoos and you know body care products. There's just too much FMCG packaging in our home. So that was kind of all came together in my mind, and I said I can solve this. This is my one thing that I can I can contribute to and create something that really is marine degradable and won't stick around in our in our oceans. Okay, okay. How did you get from that idea to having the first prototype in your hands? Uh, I think. I'm completely stubborn, <laughs> so I, I did contact everyone on the planet who <laughs> might be able to help okay. me, uh, in, including the universities. Yeah, I was just uh, I was just on a mission to find that right person that that could 
helped me make this, you know, and doing a lot of research, reading a lot of scientific journals and trying to educate myself as fast as possible on polymers and, and things like that. At the end of the day, it, it paid off. I just met the right scientists at the right time and they connected me to my now team. Uh, I have a processing team and I have a biopolymer expert. They happen to know each other. So we've been developing this for the past year and a half. We've made enormous strides together. So hugely proud of the, of oh, the progress bet. we've made. So in this phase when you're basically asking everywhere for uh, essentially for people that could help with this idea, that took you to finding the right partners mm-hmm. for you. Is that right? Yeah, I think I'm um, just being own, really open but also completely genuine about why I'm doing this. And I think the more you share and the more passion you have about, you know, I, I want to save the ocean, I want to create a future for children. I'm really passionate about sustainable materials and stopping this microplastic sort of, you know, the things that keep you up at night. Um, you'll find those people, they'll come, they'll, they'll find you as well. They're, they're like, I'm exactly the same. So I think that that energy begets energy (laughs) not to get too woo-woo about it but it it sort of does you know they find you did you immediately realize you had to go out and look for people with the skills you needed yeah I spent quite a bit of time in the early days getting my strategy right I'm very careful at planning I suppose and that comes from my background in project management and planning so just really looking at what what is the most logical you know, before I'm bringing other people into into my space, and you know, I'm definitely not a not about to waste people's time, especially if they're they're experts in a field. Really looking at what what I needed to have ready in terms of the value chain and the market research, and exploring exactly that right fit. Because what I've learned about, especially people in technical, you know that science, uh, biomaterial space, and they're really in the lab every day, are very focused on the detail, is the more detail and prescription you can give, you know, literally that's their happy place. So for me, I, I do all the work around around that, you know, like where am I sourcing from? And that's that's key for me. All of these things that don't necessarily concern their part of the journey. So where I'm sourcing from and who my end customer is, I did a lot of work in that space, a lot of customer discovery before I actually engaged the technical experts to really understand yeah. the space and, and the demand. And if it was even a, you know, I don't think there's anything um, worthwhile in creating an innovation if, if there's not going to be a market for it, if it's not actually going to sell. You, otherwise, it's just, it's going to die in a lab. So absolutely. So finding that direct How did route, you go about finding that? How, how did you go about validating um, that I, idea. I was lucky enough to get into the Climate Kick Accelerator pretty early on and that was uh-huh. really around, you know, it's all nice to want to try and save the planet but you have to you have to have money in the bank to do that. So it was really around whatever your fantastic idea is, it has to be commercial at scale so it has to have global take up. So that just led me to do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of customer discovery phone calls. We're in a hard lockdown in Australia, so it wasn't a terrible project to keep me occupied um, while I, while I was stuck in my lounge room. But so, in, in practice, sorry to interrupt. In, in practical, in practical terms, that was basically you calling mm. potential customers and, and and pick their brains for lack of yeah, a better expression. Yeah, customers, professors. Uh, so 
everyone in kind of seaweed farming, I, I was just actually inhaling information like, yeah. you know, the whole drinking from a fire hydrant analogy. I was doing that for about 12 months straight, continue to do it, to be honest. I think you have to keep learning in this space. Yeah, I just really wanted to know who was going to pay for that. If we created a world first in seaweed bioplastic packaging, what performance criteria are the absolute minimum standard that those those customers are going to want? How will it actually fit into standard manufacturing value chains? And also, what's the willingness to pay? So what kind of green premium will people accept and, and what market segment does that fit into? So I have so many learnings from that. Um, I actually began looking at the horticulture and agricultural space. I was very concerned about soil health in Australia where we have hugely scary food security issues coming up and, uh, you know, a lot of chemical fertilizers, mm. um, microplastics just ruining our soil. So for me, I was thinking of how can I apply biofilms to that market where it'll actually benefit the soil mm -hmm. once it breaks down. But yeah, I quickly learned and everyone's really, really open and honest when you, when you call all these people, they'll say, we love it. We've always wanted to do that. Too price sensitive. We're not going to be the first movers, but let's hope it, it takes off, you know? So, and I just validated that over and over again with different brands, with different organizations. And then I, it was actually when I phoned a local cosmetics, um, they're like a boutique, you know, we've got it. We live in a tourist village in a marine sanctuary. So there's a lot of organic, you know, beachside holiday shops. And so they sold a lot of eco products for, for tourists and they were so excited. And even in the darkness of lockdown, they were like, we have been talking about this. This is all we care about. All our customers care about this so much. That's quite cool. We actually get angry emails if we get, even with the e-commerce, you know, saturation that happened during COVID, people were were really complaining loudly back to these uh, these brands to say, you've even sent it in unsustainable packaging, you know, things that they couldn't even control because there'd be freight forwarding going on. But people were really furious about it and really taking notice of the wider impact on the environment of ordering online and receiving plastic packaging in the post and but yeah, the more I looked into that, um, it just kept getting validated over and over again. All the cosmetics brands were like, absolutely, we have been looking for solutions for years and if you can make this happen, we'll be your first customer. So it was a worthwhile experience before you kind of dive into the wrong direction. That's that's really interesting to you and we'll, we'll come back to it, particularly uh, in terms of what you said about the customer perception and almost being cheated a little bit having bought a, a sustainable mm. environmentally friendly product and then while well, it's wrapped in plastic you know exactly yeah and um i think there's a lot of powerlessness as a consumer as well when you when you're trying to do the right thing you know you're bringing your own packaging and you really try it, but it is so difficult particularly if you have a family there's it just plastic starts to pervade your home as much as you try to yeah. avoid yeah. it so with the solution that I had, I really wanted to try and solve as many of those problems that you feel as the consumer. So you can afford to buy it. It's something that will break down, but not too quickly. So it's still going to be exactly what you need it for, for the next one or two years. If you don't have, you know, there's so much problems with councils where they're not taking away green waste in certain areas, or they're not allowing, allowing home compost. Well, home compost is fine, but they won't take it away to 
different facilities in Australia. It's all it's all over the place. So yeah, so really understanding that the use cases in that in that cosmetic space has been hugely beneficial. You said something interesting. You, you said you need to find out who was going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. How did that journey go? And did you get what sort of answers did you get? Yeah, I think if you look at if you know if you walk down the aisle in your supermarket, there is just so much plastic that we we should be tackling. But yeah, the reality is there's really tight margins, particularly at your grocery level, so mass produced items. So that will have to be uh, a second or third horizon, and it's similar, I guess, to the Tesla model entry, where you have to look at premium first. You have to create really prestige products and then you can work on optimizing mass production and keeping getting those price points to a more affordable realm when you scale up so yeah it's difficult because um, particularly with single use sachets and and things like that obviously that's something that you just want to go and solve right now but somebody has to pay for it so it, it, it's different difficult to be competitive straight off the bat with a new new innovation when it comes to picking a particular funding strategy for for your company, did you know from the beginning what you wanted to do? It being bootstrapping, crowdfunding, venture capital, or all of the above. Uh, did you have a plan on that in that sense, or or did it sort of happen gradually? I think because I'm I'm quite new to the the whole startup landscape in terms of capital raising and things, so. I've bootstrapped up till now, so I've I've done two years of bootstrapping, and which is actually hugely beneficial. It, it's taught me to be very very lean. And, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of money if if you know exactly what your objectives are and what outcomes you're trying to achieve. It's I think you can um, burn a lot of cash if you don't have that focus and you're not really dedicated to just progressing your key objectives for the year does that mean your your team is quite small at the moment it is small at the moment i have a an incredible network of supporters and mentors and advisors but i found um at this r&d sort of space that i've been in for the last two years i haven't really needed this goes to the demand for this product as well the marketing hasn't been necessary in fact i'd be scared to market it at this point because the the brands, uh, big and small, you know, the, the prestige and, and, the, and the larger brands are, are coming to me. So that tells you how in demand this, this innovation is. So I think it's a lot of those things that other startups encounter where they have to really focus on traction and, and winning customers. My focus is really making sure the tech is right and making sure that value chain is aligned so that we deliver the mission that we're hoping to do. So my whole approach with Kelpie is to create this compostable bioplastic packaging that's obviously going to have great uplift for the environment if if we source ethically and sustainably. Um, my background is in social planning, so I can see the enormous potential this innovation can provide mm. to developing nations, um, coastal communities affected by climate change, making sure that the social procurement is at the heart of growing a industry that's around marine materials is going to be really key. We want to have, uh, yeah, a really holistic replace. So I know the demand's there, but working with like-minded people in the in the decision-making space, and I, and that's what brings me to Monaco this week, is 
to ensure that we grow this industry the right way and it's it's bringing it's lifting all boats it's bringing the people that are actually farming this seaweed yeah. along for the journey and that's really what I'm I'm mostly focused on moving forward and obviously scaling yeah. up <laughs> scaling up production and optimizing the the tech is yeah but I'm able to do that with the partners and and the um team that I already have at the moment at the scale that we need so yeah careful growth is the priority careful growth yeah that leads me quite well into what I was going to ask you next, which is about the, the supply chain. Many of the listeners will look at bioplastics as a potential use for their seaweed crops. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the supply chain for Kelpie. Can you give a quick overview of how we get from seaweed biomass to your bioplastic pellets? Yeah, sure. So I think that's a really important point. And it's something that I focused on very, very deeply in the first year and a half of my journey with Kelpie. You don't want to accidentally cause harm, you know, with with something that you're bringing online. And I think that comes back to sourcing responsibly. And I've been very, very diligent about making these partnerships with our supply partners. So with Kelpie, we're looking at farmed seaweed that's – and I'm excited to see that there's a lot of work being done in that space to set standards in terms of what does sustainably farm seaweed look like and basically farming endemic species in the bioregion and biodiversity is accounted for and, um, you know, good farming practices. But also we're looking at invasive species cleanup as a supply stream. And what I'm kind of really excited about is waste byproduct seaweed as a, as a biomass supplier. So when I talk about that, I'm looking at people in the who are already making great strides in the biorefinery space. They will be extracting one, two, three, four different ingredients from the biomass for food, cosmetics, or even biomedical. We've been validating that the waste stream from that process, and we've had great results in terms of we can still use that waste stream for our biopackaging. And what that means is you're actually – not using not using the the biomass for its cheapest use, which is obviously the bioplastics or fertilizers, but you're able to optimize that yield by getting those higher value uses out of the biomass first, and then that can help really offset biopackaging and keep the costs down as well. So it's a nice fractionated model to help us enter the market at, at a yeah competitive price point. From a technical standpoint. You mentioned three possible ways to sort of get the uh, seaweed biomass that you need. Essentially, seaweed farming, invasive species, and waste product. Mm-hmm. From a technical point of view, are all three of these possible at the moment? Yes. So I have supply partners in all all three of those spaces. So yeah, it, it's it's interesting. I guess why I'm saying yes is one of our advantages and the way that I've approached this and the way that my my technical team has approached this is we want we want global uptake of this. I want global impact and that's for the outcomes that I'm looking for. You know, I want to see communities uplifted, I want to see less plastic in the ocean and I want to see less carbon being emitted from, you know, replacing a lot of these high carbon products in market. So when I looked at how to approach this globally, we've created basically a template for with partners where we could replicate this processing, you know, uh, fractionated market model and 
bioplastic production all over the world. And the reason we can do that is we haven't limited ourselves to one species. So Kelpie has been validating species in different bioregions around the planet based on where there is an abundance currently. So I validated Australian uh, abundant species really early on, but I don't believe in wild harvest for, for biopackaging. That doesn't make any sense with the kelp loss that exists in Australia. So that's been, you know, that's got a pin in it until we, we start farming regeneratively in Australia and, and, you know, replenishing the ocean. But Okay. But Australian kelp could be a, a possible source. It works extremely well. Yeah. And one of our most abundant species. And we are getting closer to farming it. But it's the one that I walk walk around with every day. Yeah. Sure. And it, it would give you the sort of ingredients that you need for your products. Yeah. It's got fantastic properties. It's also got other really exciting potential properties for, for biomedical. So tumor, you know, cancer treatment, there's plenty of high infocoidin, tyanide, and people are already using it for like condiments and food products. But it, it just uh -huh. has so much more potential. We just haven't invested enough in Australia in, in valorizing it further and, and growing it. And and it's not just red seaweed? No, I actually, I didn't begin with reds. I, I started with browns. Um, reds are also working, will validate as many as we can, as long as they're abundantly available. There's a lot of actual like green seaweeds used in aquaculture in Australia for bioremediation efforts as well. So that's something I'm interested in exploring. But yeah, no, we actually began with the browns, um, and we've we've also validated some some reds too. So, so so obviously at the moment you you get your uh, ingredients from from your partners. Yeah, that's right. How yeah. do you see your, your your supply chain evolving over the next few years? Well, it's interesting because when I um, when I get samples sent from current like existing suppliers that are farming and they have they have plenty of biomass. We sort of go back and forth and, and there's the question around, well, how much do you need? And I say, how much can you supply? So it, it's – and then it ends up being, well, we can supply as much as you need. So <laughs> it's all possible. I think it really just needed that, that market pull for products that are genuinely going to have that up, uptake at scale, then one begets the other. So it, it's, it's counterintuitive because it – I talk to people in the seaweed farming space and they're, they're frustrated because it's difficult to raise capital when you're looking at farming tech. But obviously the horse needs to come before the cart, but investors are, are more interested in the innovation and the product side. So even though you need one without to get the other. <laughs> so it, it's interesting. I think, I think that balance will sort itself out hopefully in the next um, year or two when we see these products enter market and the demand become apparent yeah what's exciting about what we're doing with the kelpie product is we're working closely with suppliers and farmers on a really easy i guess pathway to supplying to us so there's not a lot that needs to happen before we start doing our biotech formulation and processing so essentially what i love about it is it's a quite a clean process So, for instance, we've got suppliers in India, Indonesia. I'm talking to people in Dominican Republic, Fiji, Philippines, and it's really at the moment. If you're if you're not, oh, ideally, we want to come in with our partners and look at more fractionated uses. So, 
explore what can be extracted before we do what we do. But we're looking at uh, recycled water washing, so ideally a few times of recycled water washing in fresh water, uh, sun drying, which in these, thankfully in the in the regions that we're looking at have an abundance of sunshine. So, for example, in India, um, the government actually provides those greenhouses for drying vegetables and chilies and things. That works perfectly for seaweed and it'll take, you know, four to five days to really remove all that water. So you're looking at really low power options for, for getting it to the point that we want it. Ideally, then it would be ground, uh, so pulverized into a powder. Sometimes that capability isn't there just yet because we're only, you know, talking to customers at pilot scale. So they're not investing in CapEx to, to get big pulverizers and things. But so sometimes we're just receiving it as like dried flakes or dried sort of I know when I began I, I actually bought a, a piece of equipment from Bunnings, which is a a hardware chain in Australia. And it was just something that you feed a branch through and macerates it into smaller pieces. So so I did that with the kelps from home. So it's something like that. It works quite well. But ideally we get it down to quite a fine powder and then our team goes through our formula and process to create our extruded pellets and the pellets uh we have pellets for rigid and for flexible applications and what's exciting about them is we've designed them so that they can drop in to standard manufacturing plants so if you have a big plastics plant in your region you basically don't put the resin the oil-based resin pellets in to do injection molding you would use ours instead and that's okay. That's where we can get real market entry in terms of scale. Yeah, so that's re- really exciting <laughs> um, part of the innovation. So throughout all the steps that you just described, what are your biggest frustrations and pain points as an innovator where you feel like that more change and better solutions are needed? I think it's just very different you know, you're working in different legislative environments when, you, when you're looking at, which is always the case when you're looking at global manufacturing, but we have the added layer of working with an organic material. So uh, customs can be really interesting if you're trying to do R&D between countries bringing in uh, organic material. It's hugely problematic. So things like that, you just lose, you lose months in logistics and trying to work with customs and, and get um, samples released. That's really frustrating. That's one of the key reasons why, yeah, just moving the biotech team to one country will help us. But I think in future what we're looking at is us as a team going to the country that has the abundant supply and working with, you know, a lab space. It'll just speed up the whole process and that's something we're realising to keep validating and get that, that optimal formula for endemic species internationally we have to be the one to go to the seaweed rather than trying to bring the seaweed to us. <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. But it's very exciting for reducing the, you know, reducing the carbon footprint of, of moving packaging materials around the world if you can actually create the biopackaging close to where you're farming seaweed and, you know, you're already saving in enormous amounts of um, transport-related carbon. So that that's a good outcome as well. A bit earlier, I think you talked about uh, the soil and using the soil as a as a carbon sink mm. it's not necessarily something that one would think about when discussing bioplastics uh, can you can you explain that and why is it important 
Yeah, I think everyone's quite interested in the life cycle analysis, particularly, you know, blue carbon investors are really interested in how seaweed products, how, how do they factor in? And it's the answer is not very straightforward. I, I choose to look at it as a replacement for high carbon products. But if we are, you know, you, you're going to lose some of that carbon in the processing and things like that. But if we are making sure as much as possible that these bioplastic products are ending up in soil, then you are holding that carbon um, in the soil. And you're also remediating soil that will help grow more, you know, higher yielding crops and um, healthier food products. But so home compostable is really key. Um, where there's been some countries, Australia's one, the UK has a bit of an issue as well, where you might have that, you know, composted, even commercially composted um, biomaterials, but you're not allowed to sell it to growers because there's there's all these regulation around testing each batch and it's just hugely expensive. So what they're doing is is sending it to biogas facilities and converting it to clean energy, which I still think is a fantastic outcome and I think that's an exciting end use for, for something that, you know, that obviously is saving carbon in, in many different ways. So there's a lot of off, offsets into, or replacement carbon that's happening with a product like this. And, and I guess the beauty is of having all, all these options, I guess. Um, you you said earlier that your pellets will be you know, fully organic and, and compostable. And I was just going to ask whether by compostable, you mean both home compostable and also industrially compostable. For somebody that, for example, doesn't have a garden, would be, would they be able to put it in the food waste bin? And does that yes. work? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's both. It's actually also mechanically recyclable. So we've got home compostable, industrially compostable. And as long as it's, if we get a closed loop customer, which I'm exploring as, as, a, as a path, as an initial path to market. And what I mean by that is if you have a captured stream, so if you look at hotels, airlines, events, or even uh, sample packaging that you see in cosmetic stores, so a lot of cosmetic stores will go through hundreds and hundreds of sample pots and, and sachets, but if they're able to capture that and it's not out there you know, for the consumer to deal with in the initial entry, then that's hugely exciting because you can actually mechanically recycle it, but it has to be with its its own kind, if you know what I mean. It will contaminate traditional plastics if it ends up in the wrong place so if somebody inadvertently put them into the plastic recycling bin that would be a problem um it would be but it shouldn't be because i i know from you know i really have nerded out on the value chain and i know that they have sorting <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they have sorting mechanisms at these facilities so they can spot uh about an organic oh, right. material in in the in the mix so it'd be really unlikely that it ends up in, you know, virgin plastic recycling, to be honest. But, yeah, as, as you're bringing something online, it'd be best to avoid it <laughs> in the first instance while, while the education and the transition happens. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess at the same time you, you wonder, you know, if it's all going to be in the hands of the consumers, they'll probably get it wrong. I mean. Yeah. If recycling has told us something, is that, you know? Oh, yeah, it's hugely confusing. And it's why I tried to get rid of that angst at the end of life as well. So if it ends up in landfill, 
that's fine. It'll, it'll break down like an apple core breaks down. So there's no huge wrong answer, it, except it, it will start to cause headaches for virgin plastic recycling depots. Yeah. Hopefully councils will come on board with, uh, we're all going to have, we call them FOGO bins. Do you call them FOGO bins in the UK, those home food? It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't ring a bell. No. <laughs> well, it's basically just the home compost bin, you know, and the council will take home compost away as well in some yeah. areas. So that would be the ideal. If One other exciting point, it, it, which is something I'm really thrilled to pilot uh, as soon as possible, um, there's actually a group in the UK called Green Ecotech and they have commercial composting units that they, they put in hospitals so they have DHS contracts um, across the UK and they also have them installed at major hotels with Four Seasons and big hotel chains. So what they do is they actually collect all the food waste on site and they convert that to compost in this big unit. They can also take 20 to 30% of compostable biopackaging. So if Kelpie was to start with mini amenities for hotels or single-use items for hospitals, you could actually capture that you know, in that closed stream and it becomes commercially composted. And that's still a huge, huge amount of plastic that's being taken out of the supply stream, you know, with those, just those two uses. So that's why focus can be really, really exciting um, if you're just looking at small sample size rigids and then single-use sachet sample sizes, just those two uses alone, um, we can reduce plastic by an enormous amount. And they happen to be some of the biggest polluters on the planet because they're little, they don't get recycled, and the sachets we know aren't designed mm. to be recyclable or, or degradable. So they're, they're two big problematic packaging items that um, we're, we've zeroed in on to solve. Finula, I'm, I'm conscious that we have gone way over time. Um, <laughs> I told you I ramble. To, we're have to bring this. <laughs> no, yeah. but it was it was great. It was really interesting. I, I took loads of notes, and I think uh, the listeners will find it really useful. We touched on a lot of interesting points, and I think a lot of things that haven't been covered before. Mm, uh, so great. a lot of a lot of good stuff in there. Is there anything else that you would like to add, or or a message for my audience, a call to action, anything at all? In terms of a call to action, oh, I think, yeah, definitely the biggest learning that I've had is we nobody can, can do this alone. <laughs> so we, we definitely need to yeah. work together, be as open as possible, connect the science with the entrepreneurs and the, and the brands. It's, it's really going to be a transition that we all step into together. So, yeah, collaboration <laughs> is always what I end on and, and – um, it's served me well so far. Finula, thank you very much for taking the time. It's been a, a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thank you, Fed, likewise. <laughs> Looking forward to chatting again sometime. Mm-hmm.